A long time ago, you told me when I was walking in the forest that one of the things you've encountered among other, I think it was CTOs or something like that, was that they were searching for a skill among developers that is the ability to build a prototype really fast and get it out into production to test an idea. That sounds familiar, yeah. Ah, cool. I haven't made that up. That's very good. And I've been thinking about that for a while because I thought I saw a talk on YouTube some weeks ago. I haven't been able to find that talk again, so maybe I am making this up, but bear with me. In that talk, they were, were preaching the gospel of building things properly. So well-thought-out abstractions, well-thought-out design, etc., etc., etc. And that's kind of the other part of the spectrum. And to bring it back, I read in a newsletter this week a story about Scott versus Amundsen and their race to the South Pole, where the gist of that is it's very dangerous to be on the South Pole. So you want to be there for as short time as possible. This is analogous with being on Mount Everest. It's super dangerous. So the faster you can move, the greater the chances that you will reach your goal and come back alive. And we can we can expand that analogy to cover startups too. A startup most hopefully won't kill you. Yeah, so the amount of time... Well, I guess the amount of time you spend in development, is that the dangerous part? I think so. Or that you want to be able to move as fast as possible. Hmm. And moving in a startup, well, at my job, there's actually, we do move things around, but, but we'll ignore that. I think the idea is to be able to cover as much metaphorical ground, try as many ideas as possible in as short time as possible. Yeah. Uh, and I'm having a hard time getting my head around this. Yeah, so I think I'm actually very split in this regard as well. Because on one side, there is like just bash an MVP together, or rather bash a prototype together that could eventually be an MVP if, if love and attention was uh, put upon it because it showed promise. And just get it out the door. It can be really rough. It can be really bad. Ideally, you shouldn't polish it at all. You should just try to verify the idea. Is this something for someone? And then on the other end, it's kind of this, okay, if we build well, well, we don't have to build it multiple times. We don't have to fix it as much. And that requires some careful thought and some planning and like space to make correct moves. But it is also kind of in line with this whole idea of uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Exactly. Which I believe is a uh, Marine's thing or something, like it's military in, in his uh, origin. But I, I know that's true sometimes. What I think some of the challenges are for the race to the pole kind of thing, the key to speed on the ice is probably preparation. And preparation specification thinking through a problem when you're doing a startup i think that still happens on the ice <laughs> so to speak i don't think you can 
think through your problem space. You can pre- can't prepare all your abstractions. You can't really do all the pre-work. Not all of it. Some of it maybe, but not all of it before you hit the ice, before you spend time on climbing Everest. Because like you, you can't, unless you have some kind of runway to prep a product before you launch your product, where, where I think it might work, I guess is that search for like developers that have that already have some kind of sound abstractions in their back pocket that have good habits where the challenge is not really the technology like you I think you can take that approach I've also heard people say we need everyone to slow down to keep the same pace and that's how we move fast but that's how we make good progress that's also a thing like you can you can try to move fast in a multiple different directions and competing methods and then you might not actually get anywhere and like these are these are kind of competing ideas and i don't know quite how to square the circle because i i think both can be appropriate and i think they hopefully they are appropriate for different <laughs> different ventures yeah and i watched a talk or something where they talked about or it's I think it's a common idea by now that if cycle time can be as short as possible. So I think a cycle is defined by from where someone gets an idea or a bug is reported to when the code is live in production. So if that can be as short as possible, I think this shows up in Accelerate by Foursquare. Probably. Everything does. It sounds in line with that book, yeah. Yeah, so so that minimizes risk too. That's interesting because I've been working on tech debt, paying off tech debt for, well, since I started this job, but, but mostly the last few months. And the tech debt and the, the system is built in such a way that if you want to change something in one place, you need to change it everywhere. This makes it very hard to build things that work. <laughs> At least works the first time around. So so it's quite common to build functionality, build tests, be happy about it, deploy it, and then something crashes because we forgot to check the some app somewhere that actually interacts with this system, but yeah. Yeah. Because there are no no clear interfaces, which speaks in in um, for having clear interfaces here and there, and I suppose that's one of the the pros of doing things in a microservice architecture. But it can of course be done without a microservice architecture. In that way, we all save lots of time and yeah, frustration. Yeah, yeah there are a lot of bare maps in that system, like yeah, straight up entirely dynamic maps and when i'm just hacking something together that's usually what i'll use as well but whenever i start poking around and like hmm, i really want to be certain of this and that and this and that suddenly it's like no i need a struct like it's time to make a proper data data structure here and kind of control what i can do with it that makes it easier to test that it makes it easier to wrangle it makes it trivial to identify where it's used that kind of thing and that's good that's really good. Uh, I think it it can 
depending on how you structure your code, of course, uh, it can work in line with the parse don't validate blog post, which I probably referenced before, but I think it's quite good. And I think it also needs to be, be, uh, um, there needs to be a version of it for Elixir. It's written with Haskell in mind, so it's scary by definition. (laughs) I'm also thinking, because this system, it was built for quite many years in this okay, we need to move as fast as we possibly can. We need to cut as many corners as we can to be able to do all of these cool things. And now our team velocity is almost zero because we need to repair so many things yeah. before we can really do anything. Or maybe I'm I'm just frustrated at the moment, but, but it's not as fast as it would have been if they would have done things another way. Yeah, but maybe I wouldn't have this job then. So, <laughs> well, may- maybe it would also be a kind of more stable uh, company. Uh, like maybe it would be boring software <laughs> if <laughs> it would have been built in a simpler way. So, I think they really went for a lot of innovation points when when they started that project because they started with Elixir pretty early on, not that controversial not that wild but they also didn't have like the guidance of like oh this is a typical phoenix app Um, they didn't choose a normal sql database they didn't even choose a normal no sql database they chose an odd database and then they layered a bunch of amnesia caching on it and there's pub subs and there's events up the wazoo it's a really unusual architecture and it is a really loose architecture, which in some ways, like adding things to that system is not difficult. Changing things is difficult. Like rather breaking changes is the really difficult part in my experience from that system. Like removing something or renaming something is almost impossible. <laughs> but yeah. adding a new field is trivial. So it it does have its upsides and its downsides. And I think they were trying to do some really kind of clever stuff but i think it was a little bit too clever because now the schema is all over the place yeah and as long as nothing is changed it works quite well yeah but it that system is interesting in that it could do half of what is actually happening and probably produce the same result because it doesn't need to be super distributed and it doesn't need a super nifty caching layer for 90 percent of what it's doing and like there are a lot of complexities that could probably be stripped out but i'm not sure they knew that up front i think every part of that like some parts of that system was probably like a cool idea someone had and some parts were responses to like oh the database is a bit slow let's add a caching layer well how do you do a cool caching layer when you have multiple nodes? Well, Amnesia could do it. How do we communicate updates to all these nodes? Well, we could do a pub sub mechanism. And like, I think every step made sense, um, but it was not necessarily well thought through from the beginning. Or it was for what it was supposed to be, but then it has kept growing and like being evolved upon. 
the the original intent very easily gets lost. Yeah. And that's kind of that's the curse of all software, right? Un- unless you build something that's very pointy and sharp and is not really able to do anything else. I'm thinking about many of the Unix tools until they are rewritten again by the GNU project <laughs> and they can do everything suddenly. I think a lot of the reasons why like a project like FFmpeg, for example, keeps moving forward at all is that people depend on it and people get really pissed if it breaks. So there's like that high tension uh, on that it has to be reasonable and that it has demands on it like, oh, it needs to be performant, it needs to be this, it needs to be that. And for example, if you take a tool like FFmpeg, there is some kind of architecture in that to ensure that it can handle like it ha- it has to have sound abstractions because it has to be very pluggable with encoders and decoders and uh, all of that like video stuff and if you're looking at simpler tools i guess like command line tools generally um are used by a bunch of developers and nerds and they care kind of about how the code works and if you want contributors and or if you have contributors, like if you you're getting outside contributions from people you don't know and don't necessarily trust, you are going to check that code and kind of enforce some kind of standard on it, either implicitly or explicitly. And I think that serves open source projects to to sort of strive for maintainability. Like, oh, other people are adding code to this. It must not sprawl. While your own kind of project or your in-company project your in-house project there you have this team who works with it every day and becomes blind to kind of the bigger picture usually they're always off solving some new problem in some end of the code base and building new patterns and building new parts if you're really lucky there's someone that's kind of holding the bigger picture in mind and being like no this is how we add this functionality this is how we add the new thing or there's sort of a, a way it's been designed where there's an obvious way to add new things. But th- those are really tricky problems, especially when you're dealing with like different experience levels, different like different styles, different ideas about what is good and what is bad. Because as you were saying, like an interface, yeah, that's a good thing to have. Well, you know what's even better? An interface factory manager. <laughs> It's like for some people, everything needs to be super defined and super interfacey or super uh, kind of structural or architected or engineered, over engineered to some. And for some people, it's like uh, just enough. <laughs> you just need a little sprinkling of interface, or you just need maybe some API, but but a minimum. And I think I've at different times argued for both because I think I fundamentally believe in in some of both. I think I lean more on the loose end, but I don't think it's appropriate everywhere. What would you want to do? Like, how would you want to build an application like this? I don't know. That's... <laughs> but That's a better answer than it depends, but clients don't like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Hi client, please pay me to not build an application for you. Please, I don't <laughs> know. Yes, please pay me to find out. Yeah, isn't that a part of being a consultant? Like first we roadmap, then we build. Um, At dawn we roadmap. We do, yeah. But I can speculate. I can can think while I talk. So I like the idea of having clear interfaces between modules. I like is the name deep modules. So the idea is to have a f- few functions in a module that you can interact with a module with. Public functions, the rest are private. I like to pure functions or Functions without side effects are really nice because then they can be tested without too much of a hassle. So things like that Uh, and things that break noisily when they break and tests. I'm very fond of tests. Not necessarily writing them, but having them there. Yeah, so some people like... Moving fast means writing tests up front because they can they kind of move with confidence when they do. To some people, moving fast means writing very few tests or writing a few tests to verify what you built, but maybe even deleting them later because they might slow down kind of the build or the process or it become like a test suite is code you need to maintain. And particular types of tests get really really costly to maintain because they they're like either fragile for some reason or just really in there into like the implementation details and it's like okay yeah test your interfaces but also like which interfaces (laughs) which interfaces are worth testing and which are just deeper abstractions that will vary i think yeah and if if the whole code is uh if your new feature interacts with all the code, then to have this integration test, it, it's going to be the mother of all integration tests. It will, will go through everything. And if any other test has done something with the state and the state isn't restored properly, then this will be a flaky test. That depends so much on what other tests have been run and not run. Yeah. Hmm. I also prefer to have to have an algebra for for my stuff, and that's a scary word again. Yeah. What does it mean to have an algebra for something? I keep this comes up every now and then, and it's not a thing. I I don't algebra anything, as far as I know. You don't. Oh, cool. Uh, an algebra is a language, which is also potentially a scary word or what i'm thinking about is in the elixir case it's a struct and a set of operations on that struct and that set of operations is the minimal set of operations Uh, or they could be implemented in terms of each other which means that there's you get a nice toolbox to uh, work with this struct with 
And let's see if I can can summon an example from some good tome. I think plug is one of those. I haven't worked too much with plug, so it's it's yeah. But you you typically deal with a plug construct, and all of the functions take one of those and produce generally produce a new one. Yeah, except when for some reason they shouldn't. <laughs> That's a good exception. Um, so yeah, that's one way of doing it, and um, I think it leads to nice code that's easy to think about because it becomes very concrete suddenly. Like here's a thing you can do these other things with this thing, and turn it into something else. This all sounds very very Elm in my experience, and I, yeah, I imagine Haskell is quite the same. It's a it's a yep. kind of a functional functional. Um, that yep and especially if you have that kind of type system usually there's a one or several types that your module exposes that you deal with and then you provide a bunch of functions to do interesting things with them yep at uh, my current client we do a bunch of geometry related stuff and there's a bunch of elm libraries for dealing with geometry so like points and lines and vectors and bounding boxes and all of that stuff Nice. And it's super useful, super powerful. It's also sometimes really, really like just heavy to deal with because you cannot access like the raw number of an like an X position from a point without calling a particular function to extract it in a very specific manner. And then, oh, you didn't get a float, you got a quantity. Uh, of pixels <laughs> I was like okay but then I need to use the quantity thing to get the a- actual f- number of pixels okay yeah now I have my number of pixels which I can actually shove into like HTML or <laughs> CSS or make a calculation on like uh, some of course the like the quantity ones uh, if you get a quantity you can add them and if you have a point and another point you can kind of translate them to each other and you can do vector make vectors of them like it's powerful but sometimes it would be so convenient if i just had some normal numbers like i just need an xy coordinate that's all i really want right now yeah numbers are interesting though because they can either have a unit like i have um, seven cups of coffee a day uh, or they can be unitless, like um, I'm out of examples, um, <laughs> like seven. <laughs> yeah, like sometimes you're not dealing with with a particular unit, or you don't know which yeah. unit you're dealing with. I think, and that's kind of where unitless comes in. But that that's definitely something we do in that one, where it's like, oh, I'm turning this into a unitless. <laughs> So then I get a quantity unit less that is that also somewhere contains the number five, but I cannot for the life yeah. of me just access the five directly <laughs> <laughs> without asking it to turn that into a float or whatever. Yeah, they absolutely need get number please yeah. function. Fn number clicks. Yeah, that should be my extension module that extends all of those like it import all of those modules and just like oh turn this into some reasonable set of numbers but of course 
those functions kind of exist, but kind of not. Yeah. No, but I think I see where where that algebra thinking comes in. And I think it's a good way of thinking through a problem. Something I've started doing when when it's like, oh, how do I actually want this to work? If I'm building a library for for a particular protocol or an implementation, it's like, where do I start? And then it's usually that I try to write a test when I have no code. And just like, I think I would like the syntax of using this to be this. Then I try to write it and try to figure out if if it's ergonomic at all and kind of, does it make sense to use a bunch of pipes or is this more, uh, is this better uh, used with some other pattern? Like how, what would error handling need to look like? That kind of thing. And that tends to boil down to like, oh, I need a struct and I need a bunch of functions. And then maybe I need more structs and more functions under there, or I need uh, a multitude of structs and functions depending on what part of the thing you're wrangling. Uh, But yeah, uh, it often boils down to structs and functions. Yeah, I think, is it Bruce Tate who has the pattern I've forgotten the name of? It's not CRDT, it's Create, Reduce. CRC, so that's... Uh, I yeah. believe it's create, reduce, convert, which is explained as you create it once, then you reduce n a number of times, so any number of times, I guess, which means fundamentally it's what, what you see when you have an API that is nice and pipeable. It's like, oh, you start with creating the struct. And some other people that I follow have underlined like, it is almost a crime to just call a struct to create it. Like there should be a function that takes no arguments or takes a few required arguments that creates your struct for you. I don't know if everyone agrees on this, but I think it's, uh, like he, he was very adamant and I think there's some good reason for that because that makes it possible to change a lot of things about the struct without needing to track down every place where someone created one ad hoc. But then, like, so you create your struct, and then you have a bunch of functions that take that struct, perform an operation that you want to be a separate operation, and then return an updated version of that struct. And that, I've tried this, and, like... My question mark is error handling, what the appropriate amount of error handling is. Because you could like race or throw. I guess race would be the typical appropriate one uh, when something goes wrong and just make exclamation point functions as the convention is in, in Elixir. And you just pipe those through. Otherwise, you would probably want the OK error syntax, like OK error tuples, so results fundamentally. And... Those are kind of clunky to deal with in a pipe. You don't really want to pipe those. So you have this option and like, yeah, does the struct turn into an error? Does it does it embed an error within it and then turn every subsequent operation into a no-op? Because the last step is convert, which should turn it into 
whatever you want it to to end up as that could be like oh and now we are producing uh, at the end here a full-on user schema but before then we were just dealing with like a user struct of some sort or but it turns it into a final form it could be oh this we want the struct to be turned into a particular shape of json that's used by this api that would be a convert action okay. but it's the end of a pipe a line of pipes how do ecto and plug handle this because they are built like this right plug uh definitely does a bunch of this so it's not as straightforward as like the simple case of HTTP is there's a request coming in, there's a response produced. This is a normal case, but it is not the only case. Like, oh, this turned into a WebSocket. Uh, it is no longer a request yeah. response. Or this is a chunked response. This response is never fully sent. Or it is. it takes a while to get fully sent and is sent multiple times. So it is not quite cleanly that abstraction. But it's very close. And for the normal case, for the HTTP case, I think, yes, it does. Like you would put your error codes, like your status responses on the connection. And then plug will turn that into an appropriate HTTP response. So that uh, definitely does it that way. Ecto uses change sets for this. So you have a schema or you haven't created uh, than that particular user yet uh, so you have an empty schema but regardless you call a function to like create a change set you pass your data in and then like the change set is taken or like the struct is created passed into a cast which turns it into so that would be the create i guess uh, because it turn takes your parameters and a schema and turns it into a change set. What happens if it isn't valid? Uh, so the cast doesn't care if it's valid. But then there are additional uh, calls you can make, like validate required, for example, or validate length, like minimal, maximal, string lengths of particular fields. And So then you stack all of your validations step-by-step step after the cast. So the cast determines which fields are relevant at all. Anything not uh, included in the cast. So the cast has uh, a number of fields or a number of field names that you that you say like, oh, I care about name, I care about password, I care about last name, and I care about uh, cat color. But uh, then you could do validate required cat color because that's the really only important value. Yep. And then you can ensure that the cat color is more than two characters and yada, yada, yada. And at the end, you have produced a change set. You haven't done anything with it. But typically, you would have a change set that is ready to be sent off to the database. Because some of the validation, for example, Ecto can't do because it needs the database to do it. What it can do is that you can say the database is going to expect this to be unique for example. So when the database throws uh, an angry error back at you, Ecto can catch that and go, oh, the change set expected that this could happen. So that is a nice graceful error that we can just package in as a validation failure, kind of. 
so in the end, uh, most ecto operations, like or normal uh, insert and updates, they produce an OK error tuple, and if it's an OK, it will have the schema of the f- successfully updated uh, entity. So it will have a struct, or uh, on the error case, it would have an error tuple with a change set, and the change set would contain all the validation information or the failures. That's quite neat, but it makes it hard to pipe. It may it does make it hard to pipe, and you can instead then use... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if bangable is a good way to refer to these functions, but uh, the ones with a bang on them. Uh, and then it would yeah. just race instead. But fundamentally, that's kind of... I mean, it's a result. In Elm, it would be a result change set schema. Yeah, and in Elm, you use it's not bind, it's another function to, or map maybe is the function name to only work with a happy path. Yeah, map is happy path. I really hope that there's a function named sad path, but I doubt it. So I think you can do map error to only work with a the oh. negative path and if you want to get rid of the negative path which is what i often do uh, it's a with default <laughs> and ah, then yes. you get out of result land altogether yeah i prefer to to infect the whole code base with result yeah oh the the way that that is to work with sometimes though that's <laughs> ah especially if you have a lot of different error types I actually spoke to a developer today that talked about Rock. Have you looked at Rock at all? I heard about it first time today when I listened to a podcast called something like Happy Path, uh, where they spoke about an interview with the creator of Elm and Rock, who Richard Feldman said that yes, who said that uh, there will be no carrying in Rock. Uh, and uh, one of the hosts, uh, or maybe the guest, uh, was aghast. And the others were, well, yeah. So, uh, what's rock? It's spelled like the bird, right? Well, in this case, the the thing we, we spoke about, so I think it's an evolution to try to take a lot of what was good about Elm, or is good about Elm, mm-hmm. and make it more appropriate for back in development but i i haven't followed rock so i might be way off okay but this guy um mentioned that rock has a nicety for for dealing with a variety of result error types so if you're doing like oh uh first i want to read a file then i want to upload a file then i want to do this and do that and do this and do that you would in elm need to build out like a mega error handling error wrangling converting beast of a thing to nicely try and handle that the results all have different error types while in this case you could define that like no this function has so uh, rock does a bunch of inference to figure out the types you don't have to specify them Mm -hmm. or in most cases i imagine i think there might be cases where you don't get away with it I would imagine. But, <laughs> yeah. but what 
you could do then is to say this is a result and then it's a error like asterisk and then whatever whatever the positive type is i imagine you could do the positive type as a asterisk as well and then it will by inference figure out like oh what errors could this be what types could this be and provide you sort of implicitly a type that contains all those types oh yeah so then you just handle in one place later you can handle all the possible cases that could occur by handling all the original ones and that seemed like it would be nice yeah hmm I never remember what what's what like some types and union types and that kind of thing. Uh, some types and union types are almost the same thing. Okay. I have I haven't really understood the intricate details. No, wait. <laughs> oh, good lord! This is a nerd snipe. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe maybe let's divert, 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 divert. <laughs> so PHP, <laughs> PHP, yeah. That's what you want to do when you want to hack on something fast. Or it was. I don't know how it is nowadays. I haven't worked in it for so many years. Last time I saw it, it looked kind of like .NET. Oh, no. 